Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, grace and peace to you. Um, familiar story here, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, commonly, um, uh, so, well, obviously celebrated on Palm Sunday, which is not too far away now. Um, but Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, where he is declared and celebrated as uh, king by the masses, is not something new. Right? This is not unprecedented. In fact, there's various stories of a king coming into Jerusalem, uh, specifically the temple, Solomon, um, another king whose name I'm forgetting. They're all strange and foreign to us, but it's a common story. And more particularly, it's something this event foretold in the scriptures. In fact, as now in the Gospel of Luke, as we're entering into the last week of Jesus' life, it seems that his every step... Everything he does is coordinated according to the scripture's pattern. A familiar phrase we'll hear throughout um, this last week of Jesus' life is that this was to fulfill the scripture. I like the way one church father, uh, Hillary, put it. He said, everything that Christ would fulfill had been prefigured since the beginning of the world. All right, so here's Jesus in his last week of life fulfilling everything that was spoken of him according to the scriptures. So the particular scripture that undergirds and structures the triumphal entry, right? Jesus' entry into the holy city and up to the temple is the psalm that we just read, which is Psalm 118. Now it's quoted and cited on the lips of the crowd in all four gospels. Blessed is the king They all shout and praise who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, a little bit of background. Uh, Psalm 118 is part of what the Jewish people call the Hallel, or the praise psalms. So, during each major holiday, the Jews would, and still do, sing and chant and pray through the Hallel verbatim. And the Hallel, the praise, is Psalms 113 through 118. So at the Feast of Tabernacles, at the Feast of Passover, um, and the various other pilgrimages to Jerusalem, they would all sing and chant these songs. In fact, um, scholars think that when the Scripture says that after instituting the Lord's Supper, that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn, um, it was likely uh, Psalm 118, which was sang on that day, and for that occasion. So we could imagine Jesus uh, just moments right before he was going to be arrested, singing um, with the disciples in the upper room, just having celebrated communion for the first time together, and they sing Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So let's take a step back, right, and resituate ourselves in our passage. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. Um, and the disciples, and the crowds with him, um, to celebrate the Passover. Or more accurately, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem to be the Passover sacrifice. But, as I said, he's not alone. Um, The pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a required one for the entire nation. So we can picture, right, as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, um, his disciples alongside him, and with them a vast number of people chanting the Hallel, right, chanting the praise with one another. And as they enter into the city, as they near the gates of Jerusalem, um, 
They're reclaiming Jesus as king, and their song culminates in Psalm 118, right? They're singing, blessed is he, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as for Psalm 118 itself, um, it's kind of a convoluted back and forth. There's a lot happening there. Um, But what it depicts is a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. So it begins, all right, I want to take you through Psalm 118 and just develop it for us. It begins in verse 5 um, with some unknown individual um, recounting how the Lord rescued him. So he says, verse 5, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And I love those words, and we should all pray those words. The Lord answered him, the psalmist, and then he goes on to recount his deliverance. He says, these pagan nations surrounded him, but in the name of the Lord that he cut them off. They were extinguished like a fire, um, he says, and these, this enemy, right, uh, whoever it is, whatever it is, violently pushed him so that he was falling He says, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song is the refrain, and he has become my salvation. So he sums up this little section by declaring in verse 17, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So here's the psalmist at the very end of his life, right, Uh, thinking this is it. But the Lord answered him. The Lord heard his crying and delivered him. The psalmist will not die, but he will live. And living, he approaches Jerusalem, the holy city, now with the company of people with him, who he calls the righteous. So there's this victory, and now suddenly we're in front of the gates of Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. So now here is the psalmist with the righteous with him, and the city gates are open to him, and they enter in. So it's, again, a procession, a group of people coming in, almost like a parade um, like we'd have on one of our holidays. And what's the reason for it? Well, he's come to give thanks. I shall give thanks to you, he says, for you have answered me. So here they come in the city to give thanks, to praise the Lord, but As the psalmist and this righteous company enter the city, suddenly the passage changes its voice. It speaks now from the perspective of the onlookers already in the city greeting the psalmist as he enters. Uh, Notice now in uh, in the the plural form, we. Uh, Verse 26, here's... He's entering and here's the crowd. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So it seems these people, the entire city, has been waiting for this individual to come, ready to celebrate the victory that the Lord has accomplished on his behalf. 
And as he enters, the people bless him. The passage says um, they bless him because he comes in the name of the Lord. So thus, this procession, which started somewhere outside the city gates, proceeds through the city and culminates in the temple. It says, bind the sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So the psalmist's victory culminates in a joyous uh, festival to the Lord. The entire city now is rejoicing and praising God for his marvelous works. Now, I've left out probably the most important section of that psalm, but we'll come to that later. Now, most scholars believe that this event here, depicted in Psalm 118, um, to have actually happened, right? So the psalm is not uh, merely prophetic or merely poetic, but there's a history behind it. It's hard to say exactly what event it was, and various events are offered as an explanation, but really, that's neither here nor there. Um, So it happened, but there is a prophetic element to it. Now, as you guys can see, Psalm 118 seems very uh, form-fitted to a specific event, and that's Jesus' own entry into Jerusalem, right? These two map onto one another almost perfectly. Uh, The scriptures, you see, are kind of like uh, nesting dolls, right? Encompassed within the outer doll is another one, and then another one, and another one, right? And you can open it and, uh, you know, show your kids, whatever. Um, And that's kind of how Psalm 118 operates. It contains layers of meaning, right? So over time, um, scholars point out this psalm, because of its kind of... uh, important role within Israel's history, it began to accrue deeper significance, right? Um, Even messianic significance. We can notice by the words on the people's lips. So in Psalm 118, the original psalm, they sing, blessed is is the one, rather, who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we go to our passage. Here, some however many years later on from there, now the people, they make an important alteration to the psalm. It says, blessed is the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. So in other words, Psalm 118 uh, came to be recognized as a messianic psalm. It depicted Israel's king entering into his city and his temple. So we can't say for sure, but it it seems like the people leading Jesus into the city, praising and acclaiming him, they knew what was going on, right? They, they had an understanding of what Psalm 118 was saying, and they recognized Jesus as something of the fulfillment. And so that leads us back to our passage. So Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of him to secure his transportation into the city, um, a colt. And having gotten the colt and put their coats on top of it, they placed Jesus on it, and the passage says, Um, Now, in verse 36 of Luke 19, As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully um, with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So here's what we have. Psalm 118 all over again. The person to whom the gates open, riding through the holy city as the people bless and uh, praise him, spreading their coats on the path before him, is Jesus, the true King of Israel. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, obviously, his enemies, the Pharisees, they didn't like that. They have the gall to tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to tell them to shut up. And he responds, I tell you, if these become silent, rather, the stones will cry out. And this too, the stones crying out, is in fulfillment of Scripture. There's another section in the Psalms. Um, This is Psalms 93 through 99. They're called the Royal Psalms because each one of those Psalms, um, they're some of my favorite, they praise God for his kingship, right? They acclaim him as Lord, King of heaven and earth. And they all echo with this refrain in Hebrew, Yahweh Malach, which means the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And so here comes our king into the city. Now, Psalm 98, as the king comes to earth, um, the entire created order begins to break out in praise. Look, let me read uh, a passage there for you. Verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar and all that it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, right? The Rio Grande, clap their hands. Let the mountains the Manzanos sing for joy because the Lord, for he, before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. So the Pharisees, right, they want to shut up the people. And, and, and they want to keep them from recognizing Jesus as king. But they don't understand that if the people should fail, the very stones, the very mountains and rivers and trees would begin to praise their king. Right? And may the rocks never cry out on our watch. Right? Open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths may declare your praise. So it's as if the king is drawing near, right? And the whole created order is about to break out in joy. Because the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, has arrived. Okay, so it's this beautiful, amazing scene. But here, right? In the, triumphal entry, in the triumphal entry, I guess probably when we least expect it, something dreadful happens, right? We're set up. We're thinking, okay, this is amazing. This is beautiful. And then, and then this. Again, Psalm 118 would lead us to believe that upon entering the city, Jesus would proceed in the temple with his procession behind him to make merry, right? To have a celebration and to praise the Lord with one another. But But that's not what happens. In fact, what happens is just the opposite. Jesus rides through the city gates, right? Open to me the gates of righteousness. They enter the holy city, and instead what happens is that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Now, verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus only is recorded as weeping two times in the scripture, at Lazarus' death, and now here over the city of Jerusalem, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So around Jesus, the crowds are waving their palm branches, spreading their coats on the road, singing their praise While Jesus in their midst, maybe even without their notice, weeps over them and the entire city. Rejoicing in the festivities now, Jerusalem will be leveled within a generation. And so it's a profoundly unsettling and stomach-churning twist in the story. The crowd celebrates. The crowd rejoices. The crowd thinks this is it, here is the kingdom, it's, it's at our fingertips, and Jesus weeps. But that's not all, right? The temple, remember, bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, right? They, they're, that's where the whole thing culminates. The temple where Jesus and the disciples and the people are going to celebrate and worship, where you think they were going to go, is instead judged and condemned. Now look at verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. So the holy temple, a place of festive worship and praise, had become a pig's pen of oppression and extortion a hideout for wicked and unscrupulous men. And rather than coming to celebrate, Jesus comes to condemn. He drives out those who were perverting worship, and he enacts in in something of like a, a, a parable, right? It's meant to communicate something more. He enacts judgment upon the temple. He cleans it out. It too, like the city, will be destroyed. It's almost as if Jesus is, Sealed the deal. It's only a matter of time now. As he says, they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And a little while later, as we'll see in the Gospel of Luke, while everyone is admiring the beauty of the temple and all the beautiful decorations they've put on it, Jesus again says, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. The temple's at its end. And Jesus, the king, announces its end. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Um, Read the, the historian Josephus for all the harrowing details of exactly how the city was toppled and left not one stone upon the other. So, the king... He comes to Jerusalem and the temple, not in praise, but in weeping. Not in salvation, but in judgment. So, Psalm 118, right, that we looked at, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, um, it's turned on its head. And it's only partially fulfilled. And the expected ending, this joyous ending, is not the one that we get, right? But I'm hedging, right? I told you I left out a passage there, um, And it's probably the most important section of the psalm. Look at now verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone 
which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So, so what accounts then for the tragic turn of events? Well, it's this part of Psalm 118. Jesus comes into the city, but almost paradoxically as the rejected king, right? The stone which the builders rejected. The acclaim and rejoicing of the crowd is not according to truth. They celebrate their king. They celebrate Jesus, but for something that he's not. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. They will reject Jesus in a few short days, and they will put him on a cross, right? This is the stone which the builders have rejected. Hence, Jesus weeps. Hence, Jesus cleanses the temple. So, this turn, right, it has profound meaning for us. And, and what I want to do with the rest of the message is explore that now. And I want to make three uh, relatively rapid-fire points. And the first, the first point is, I think the passage teach us, teaches us to, uh, this is going to sound like a strange statement, to recognize the left-handed king, right? Strange statement, but what do I mean by it? Well, all this comes about, Jesus says, with tears streaming from his eyes, because the people did not recognize the time of their visitation. Again, that seems like a strange thing to say, because there they are, almost the entire city, proclaiming and celebrating Jesus as the king. How did they not recognize him, right? In what way did Jesus mean these words? Because there they are. This is the king. We're blessing him. We're recognizing him. In fact, this is the only time in all the scriptures when Jesus allows himself to be explicitly recognized as king. He kind of runs an anti-PR campaign um, for the very first part of his ministry. He heals someone, tells them, don't say anything. Right? He, uh, he does a miracle, and then he slips into the shadows. Uh, hear what the Gospel of John tells us. Chapter 6, verse 15. This is after Jesus fed the multitudes. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus doesn't want any of that. And I think the reason he doesn't want it is because people are misunderstand what it means for him to be the king. However, the people are right to recognize Jesus as king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But on a deeper level, they fail to recognize the nature of his kingship. The kind of king that they are being given. They honor and praise and dote upon Jesus, but for something that he's not. For something that he's not. They want one type of king, and when they don't get it, they're going to crucify him. The people want, and here comes an explanation of that weird phrase, they want a right-handed king. That's a king who uses right-handed power. Now, well, what is right-handed power? I'm stealing this right-hand, left-hand dichotomy from Martin Luther, who, um, who, who said this many, many hundreds of years ago. And he says that right-handed power is the use the force you want, or use the force you need to get the result you want kind of power. Use the force 
you need to get the result you want kind of power, right? So we know what he's talking about there, right? And that kind of power works. Uh, Robert Capon, he, he says, um, from removing the dust with the cloth to removing your enemy with the 45, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways, right? That's right-handed power. Capon also calls it straight-line power, right? This is straight-line, no-nonsense, right? He adds, but it has a crucial limitation. He, he provides us, uh, Capon does, with an example. So, so he says, imagine your son or, or whoever uh, sneaks away with the family car without you knowing. Well, what do you do? When he comes back, you use a little right-handed, straight-lined verbal power and scare him out of ever doing that thing again, right? Now, as a son, I know a little bit about being scared out of ever doing something again. Not stealing the car, but I know about right-handed power. But Capon continues. So he says, look, if, if you're committed to this, he says, but suppose further that he does it again anyway, and again, and again, and again. He's not listening to you. He says, what do you do next if you're committed to straight-line power? He says, you raise your voice a little more nastily each time till you can't shout any louder. And then you beat him, if you're stronger than he is, until you can't beat any harder. Then you chain him to a radiator till dot, 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 but you see the point, right? So remember last week, what, what were the people expecting as Jesus was nearing Jerusalem? For the kingdom of God to appear immediately, which is to say what they were expecting was for the Messiah to come to knock some heads together, settle the scores, and to set up his kingdom, right? That's what they were expecting, the military might and in glory and honor, right? But instead of right-handed power, straight-line power, they get left-handed power which is its opposite. Jesus is the Messiah. He is going to set up his kingdom, but not the way they expected, but instead on a cross. That's where it all is achieved. So left-handed power, it hardly feels worthy of the name power, but it is. It's the power that Jesus demonstrates on the cross. Love, forgiveness, and sacrificial service. The only thing that evil cannot touch. That's why it's real power. But we, the Apostle Paul says, despise this non-power power, right? Take a good read of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and see if you can come to any other conclusion. He says to the sophisticated, you know, left-handed, crucified Messiah, it's foolishness. That's ridiculous. To the religious, it's an offense, right? Our Messiah pinned to a cross, that's how he saves the world. But it seems like the only kind of power that Jesus is interested in. And this is demonstrated throughout the gospel till the very end. Jesus hangs on the cross as the nation's left-handed king. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they mock him for it, right? Everyone mocks Jesus. That's the note that's all throughout his crucifixion. Incessant mocking And they mock him because he gives them no evidence for right-handed intervention. They say, if you're the king of the Jews, right, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself. Intervene, do something about this. They, they, They sneer at him. And of course, the irony there is rich. If he were to exercise the right-handed power that they worship, that they want, that they adore, it would mean their damnation. Yeah, come down from the cross. Saving himself 
would mean abandoning them. Of course, yet in perfect left-handed power, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So let me conclude, right, this point with just a few questions. We celebrate Jesus as king, but what sort of king do we recognize in Jesus? One who comes with right-handed power or one who comes with left-handed power? Or better, what kind of king do we want Jesus to be? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So the second point is also very straightforward. Receive the king. Recognize the king receive the king. So you remember Psalm 118? Uh, what is Jesus? How is he described in that passage? The stone which the builders rejected. And what happens to Jesus whom the people reject? He becomes the chief cornerstone, right? The people reject him, they put him on a cross, but God chooses him and he raises him from the dead. Or Put another way, in becoming the chief cornerstone, Jesus becomes the foundation stone of a new temple. He becomes the foundation stone of a new temple. He's the stone, now as the cornerstone, on which all the other stones stones are organized and built up into a new house, right? At least that's how the Apostle Peter describes it. Listen to his words in chapter 2 of his epistle, his first one. He says, coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone. Where is he getting that from? Psalm 118 which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, though rejected by men, this stone is chosen by God. As Psalm 118 reads, This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. So upon the chosen stone, all the other stones, that's us, right? Living stones are being built into a new temple for the Spirit of God to dwell in. So let's let's return just for a moment to our passage. Jesus condemns and closes the door on one temple, the physical one. You've turned it into a house of robbers. It's over. And simultaneously... Because in doing that, he sealed the deal. He's going to be put to death now. The authorities are not going to challenge, accept some sort of challenge to that severity, right? That was the end for Jesus. So in doing that, he approves the construction of a new temple, the spiritual one, in his death and resurrection. And again, Jesus' spiritual temple, that's us, is intended to be what the physical temple is not. Look what he says. We're supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to be what the other temple wasn't. And how so? Well, the old temple was condemned because, what, it was a house of robbers. And it instead was supposed to be, what, a house of prayer. A house of prayer. Listen, that's our job now. We're the new temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles are filling out the rest of the foundation, and we're being built on top of that down through the centuries until Jesus returns. And... Here's maybe where I want to get to the point. Jesus' triumphal procession from outside the city gates into the temple is happening now, so to speak. He says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. 
The point is that the king has not ceased coming into his temple. It happened then, right, in the physical manner, but it happens now in a spiritual manner. We gather as the spiritual temple, and the king comes to be among his people. Or as Revelation depicts it, Jesus is this heavenly priest who walks among the lampstands, Revelation 1. What are the lampstands? His churches. There he is in the midst of his churches coming to his temple. And so as the king rides into this temple, our church, the words of Psalm 118 apply. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, the early church used to read this passage every Sunday, welcoming Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. So rather than weeping in rejection as it was then, we aim for a joyous reception. We sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but let's also offer acceptable sacrifice. Bind the sacrifice with the cords to the altar. So what is our sacrifice, right? That procession in Psalm 118 culminates in the temple, sacrifice, joy. We invite Jesus in. Where does it culminate for us? What are our sacrifices? While doing good and sharing, the scripture says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So the king comes to his temple, and he is pleased when he sees us acting in love toward one another. So a very simple exhortation, do not forget your brothers and sisters. But remember the nesting dolls, right? We talked about those. The church is a temple, yes, that's true, but... Are not you also a temple as an individual? You are. The scripture says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you. You are also a temple. And so I ask, how does the king come to your temple? You, the individual. Does he weep? That's a sobering thought. Does he drive the robbers out, or does he rejoice and receive acceptable sacrifice? Now, the reality is, the chances are that the temple needs cleansing, right? Robbers hold ground in the inner precinct of what is supposed to be the Lord's territory. So how, how do we drive them out? Or how do we cleanse the temple? Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to offer one thing, and that's with our own tears, Jesus weeps. We cleanse the temple with our own tears of repentance, that is, with godly sorrow. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. There's a certain sorrow, right? It's according to the will of God that produces repentance in us. That, that repentance then leads to salvation. So, so out the robbers and the money changers are washed in our tears of godly sorrow. And then look, the apostle continues, now verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this godly sorrow has produced in you. It does something. He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing. And here's the important one, what zeal, what avenging of the wrong. You remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus cleanses the temple, what, what scriptures came to the disciples' mind? Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
He wept, Jesus did. Godly sorrow, and then he cleansed the temple. And when we have godly sorrow, Jesus' own zeal for the temple is infused into our souls, and it leads us to do the same. My body, this temple, is the Father's house. I will no longer tolerate defilement and impurity. So out the robbers go, out the thieves go, because this is the Lord's home. This is his territory. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, and then chapter 7, verse 1. For we are the temple of the living God, the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So may the Lord give us that zeal to cleanse the temple. So our last point, and it's really less of a last point and more an observation. Uh, remember the, the nesting dolls? Uh, Psalm 118 has still one more layer of meaning. This is earlier in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus was also lamenting over Jerusalem. He says, Luke chapter 13, verse 35, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's our line again, right? Psalm 118. Now that one cannot be referring to the triumphal entry because, well, the people did say those words, but not in truth. And so there remains then, according to Jesus' own words, some outstanding event in the future that the psalm speaks to. A time when the Jewish people, whose house was left to them desolate in their rejection of Jesus, will recognize their king and bless him once more and say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, no one can say for certain when that's going to happen and how it's going to look. But, but my hunch, right, and it's just a hunch, is gonna, it's going to be in the Jerusalem above. Listen to what Hebrew says. Chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, right, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I think on that day, whether it's the fulfillment or not, I think it's something along the lines of Psalm 118 is going to happen. The king, triumphant and glorious, will lead all his people, Jew and Gentile, into their eternal home, the heavenly Jerusalem. And on that day, not only the church, but the angels, the entire company of heaven, will sing and pray as Jesus marches before us in victory, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord.